Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicaster where we chat up with personalities who've made more than a mark in their field. Today I have with me the man who spearheaded uh, the technology quarterly of the Economist back in 2000. Uh, he's written for publications including The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, The NYT and Wired. Uh, he also knows what it is like to be on the New York Times bestseller. He holds a degree in engineering and computer science from the Oxford University and his uh, profile on the Economist tells us that he is the least musical member of a musical family. Tom Standage is the man joining me here from London. It's a pleasure to have you Tom. Pleasure to be here as well. Thanks for having me. Least musical of the musical family. Can you tell me something more about that Tom? Well basically I come from a very musical family. Um my father and my mother and my brothers are all musicians and um and I'm not. I I play the drums, which is sort of an old joke, a uh, musical joke for <laughs> musicians and a drummer. But uh instead i do this writing and i'm interested in technology and history and so on so i'm a bit of a disappointment to my my father who wanted me to play the violin like he does and uh, what does your brother and uh, mom also play you? well my mother is an organist and a choir mistress at the church and my brother is a harpsichordist and uh, and my other brother plays in a a rock band so um ah. so they they all do music for a living and uh, and i don't so i'm that's why i'm the i'm the least musical one <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you're doing some great work with uh, the economist and you've also authored a book. Uh, can you can, can you tell us more about that because it's pretty exciting the name itself it says a history of the world in six glasses and an attempt to chart the world history through the story of six beverages is what I read on a yeah. review. So how well, did I've that happen? Well, I've written four books and they're all about the history of technology. Uh, my first three books I looked at old technologies usually from the sort of Victorian period that were very similar I thought to modern technologies the first book was called the Victorian internet and it was about telegraphs and how they're very similar to the internet today and what was going on with telegraphs and things like the the wiring up of India to Europe in the 1870s was very similar to the sort of internet revolution in many ways uh, of the 1990s and one of the things that people did on those long distance telegraph wires for example was use code words as a form of compression and also to hide what they were saying and so there are all sorts of parallels there with right. this latest book on um, on drinks the the drinks are in fact uh, each drink is a sort of disruptive technology um so you have one drink that's popular and then like beer and then another drink comes along like wine that lets you do new things and has new appeal and the idea is that each period in history has a sort of defining drink a good example would be when the scientific revolution and the enlightenment happened in europe in the 17th and 18th centuries the drink that really accompanied that shift was coffee and uh it was the drink that we that became associated with intellectuals and with business and with innovation and it's still the drink that we think of in that way today right. so that's the sort of thing i'm talking about ah okay and uh, well using a gadget or a technology is one thing and then writing about it is another like unlike other news that is covered on the economist say like american politics which is more country specific uh, technology doesn't quite have geographical barriers so how do you write about such stuff so that there is something in it for the non geek from india or china 
or Middle East to understand? Well, I think that actually that the, the geographical differences in the way that the same technology is applied is what makes this interesting. One of the things The Economist does is sort of look at the Earth from space and, uh, and say, you know, why is it that, say, text messaging was very popular in Western Europe but not in America? And within Western Europe, it's much less popular in France than in other countries. Or why is it that mobile phones took off so quickly in China and India was so slow to catch up initially, although obviously the, uh, the Indian market is now the, the faster growing one. And so these sort of cross-country comparisons, because essentially it's the same technology, I think are what, what make it interesting. And that's the sort of thing we like to do at The Economist. Well, in your articles, in your series of articles on telecom convergence, you mentioned about how industries are converging like the internet broadband, the mobile telephony and television. So you have companies like AT&T, which is primarily from the fixed telephony industry. It bought out belts out to win full control over singular. It's wireless joint venture. So uh, it's like telecom having multiple orgasms <laughs> and your articles uh, really make them look very fascinating. But is it as simple as it sounds, uh, Tom? Well, it's actually um, more complicated. I mean, it is convergence is a, a difficult subject because it's used in so many different ways, that word is, by different people. So the articles that I wrote about it last year were looking at a specific aspect of convergence, which is this, what the operators are doing in most of the developed world now, which is the quadruple play. So the bundling together of fixed and mobile telephony, broadband and TV service. And the idea is that you buy all of this from a big company like AT&T and um, they basically lock you in as a customer, but in return you get a discount. Then convergence is also used to refer to device convergence, the idea that your mobile phone can also be a music player and a TV right. and, and all the other things. And there is there is a certain amount of that, but um, you know the popularity of things like the iPod suggests that there is still a very good market for things that do one thing and do it well. Similarly, my digital camera is, is a camera. Um, the cameras you get inside mobile phones is still pretty pretty dodgy actually i mean they have a large number of megapixels and a nice lens but they're really slow and useless um, <laughs> when you push the button they take ages to do anything and that's inevitable in a in a 500 dollars mobile phone you know the amount of money that's being spent on the camera part of it is is really quite small so i'm quite skeptical about some aspects of convergence the idea that everything will converge into a single box under the tv for example i think that's wrong as well and lots of people would like it to be true but um you know it actually makes sense to mix and match i want to have my nintendo wii and i want to have my satellite tuner and i don't really want those two devices to come from the same company and i want to be able to change my games console without having to get a new satellite tuner you know, and I don't want the whole lot to go wrong. If you know, if there's a single box doing everything and it breaks, then you can't do anything. Right. So I think there's a lot to be said for having lots of different boxes under the TV. So that's another aspect of convergence that I'm quite skeptical about. But it's a very interesting subject because, as its you know, name suggests, it does bring together lots of things that used to be separate and are now um, more closely related to each other than they were. Oh, okay. So according to you, uh, Apple coming out with its uh, iPod and uh, branding it as not just another MP3 player and keeping the iPhone separate is a good idea. Well, it's interesting what Apple's doing here. I mean, you could you could see there was lots of speculation about the iPhone for many years, of course. And the point at which the iPhone was always going to appear was going to be when the iPod growth started to slow down uh, and also when the growth of 
the, the, it was the Walkman phones from Sony, I think, that Apple was particularly worried about. I mean, on paper, Nokia is the biggest camera company in the world um, because they sell, you know, nearly all their phones have cameras in them. Um, right. And uh, and similarly, I think you could probably make a case that they sell more MP3 players than anyone else. But how many people are actually using the MP3 players in their phones? Not that many people because it's such a fiddle to get the music on there. But it is starting to get easier. And as things happen, like DRM starts to go away, which it looks like it's going to do, then it does start to get easier to use your phone to do these things. And so Apple really needed to be in that market. And they also, you know, it's a very attractive new market um, where the interfaces, frankly, are shocking. I mean, the, um, the I think the Nokia interface on the phones is probably the best. Um, it's probably the least bad. Um, but uh, but I mean, some I mean, Motorola, God knows who's designing their interface. <laughs> what's going on there? But I mean, they just they they have this beautiful industrial design, and then you open the phone, and there are these horrible cheesy menus, and it's just awful. Um, and you know, Sony doesn't have a great reputation for uh, for the ease of use of its software, so it made that beautiful MP3 player shaped like a kidney bean, and the software just <laughs> let the whole thing down. So Apple has really figured out that there is an opportunity to use its uh, expertise in in just making really good software that's really simple to use, um, and bringing that into a market that desperately needs it. And the, I mean, the iPhone looks like something that's fallen out of the future. It's so far ahead of all the other interfaces on all the other phones, and uh, it makes them all look, you know, a decade old straight away. Unfortunately, yeah. this does seem to be having an effect. I mean, the, Nokia just last week showed off its new interface, which looks very much like the iPhone. You know, Antti Banyoki of Nokia, whose main claim to fame, it should be said, is that um, that little tune, we owe it to him. It's it's all his fault. Uh-huh. Um, he he went past the lab one day where the engineers were figuring out how to get phones to play tunes about ten years ago. And um, he said, oh, yeah, we should have this as a feature. You know, you could have it play a tune as the ringtone. And um, and he chose that tune as the as the default tone because it was out of copyright. Um, and it's actually from a guitar concerto from the 19th century. That's another story. Anyway, Antti Bagnocchi said last week he was, you know, he wasn't uh, embarrassed to admit that when you see a competitor, i.e. Apple, come up with something really new and exciting, um, that they're not afraid to imitate. Oh, all right. That. And I, I think that means the iPhone will be a very good, shot in the arm for the mobile industry. I think Apple will have quite a small market share for some years, but it will have a huge influence, rather like the BlackBerry did. I mean, the BlackBerry, um, still the number of Blackberries out there is only, what, 5 million or something out of a out of 2.5 billion mobile devices in use. But um, it showed that you could have a nice keyboard in a device that you could fit in your pocket. And so lots and lots of other devices have stolen the idea of the BlackBerry keyboard. And I suspect that the iPhone will have a similar effect. Right, right. It was said in The Economist some time back that the iPod's uh, success was like an example of uh, the tail wagging the dog because Apple was completely down and out with only 3% share in the personal computers market and out comes uh, the iPod and it completely dented other players in the entertainment industry. Well, that's true, but I mean, the um, Apple's renaissance has obviously been led by the iPod, but has the iPod not happened? I mean, Apple would still be in much better shape than it was. I think the iPod has, to some extent, overshadowed the improvement in their main product line uh, of the Macintosh computers. I mean, the uh-huh. new OS, you know, the OS X, is not that new. It's been around for several years now, but it really is it, it really is the best OS out there, I think. And uh, and the, the computers just are uh, are wonderful. The odd thing is, actually, technology writers on the, on the Economist always seem to be Mac users, um, and, but then writers generally seem to be Mac users because Macs, you know, you open them and they come on, and then you just use them, and then you don't have to kind of muck around. Right. Um, <laughs> they, they just work. I mean, it is true. And the fact that they don't have any viruses—I mean, I'd still buy Macs if they cost twice as much as PCs because the the lack of security problems in viruses is worth 
paying the money for. I find it very odd when I meet senior executives of companies and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I had to, you know, my, my uh, computer at home, the kids were playing, and we got a virus on it, and I had to spend the whole weekend <laughs> rebuilding it. And I think, how much are these people's time worth, you know? Uh, I mean, how much is it worth to them not to have to do this? So I find it very odd that the... Um, that this isn't uh, this hasn't resulted in an even higher share for the for the Mac, but it it may yet happen. <laughs> right, and I think one of the reasons is that uh, the the hackers do not find it worthwhile they're yeah, trying no, to they're, make uh, viruses for. I think this idea though that the um, the viruses don't exist because the hackers haven't targeted the Mac. There is certainly some truth in that, and occasionally we get evidence of possible flaws. But I mean, the uh, OS X is just inherently more secure because it's based on on Unix, um, and an awful lot of the viruses that are out there, you know, people talk about them as PC viruses, but they're really viruses of Windows or Internet Explorer or Outlook. And the Microsoft business model where you link all these bits of software together does mean that a hole in one of them is a hole oh. in all of them. So I think, yeah. I think it would be interesting to see whether we started to see this. I mean, there were some viruses on Macs in the 80s, in the early days. I remember them. And uh, uh, what was it called? WDEF was the most famous one, wasn't it? Okay. Um, um, so th- th- they did exist, but, uh, but I, uh, it would be interesting to see whether we, whether we do get a problem there. I suspect we'll get a little bit of a problem, but, uh, but I think the inherent security of the OS will probably uh-huh. protect, protect us from it. It's the same with, with, same with Linux. Right. You see, all of this, Tom, viruses, Apple, iPods, MP3s, convergence, for an Indian, all of this is magical. But in India, we define broadband as anything about 256 kbps. Right. right, In in the US, it's almost more than 2 mbps. And we may have broadband, uh, but the experience is still dial-up in some places. Yeah. Now, no, actually, the funny thing is, Americans complain about that too. They point to Europe and say, or Japan in particular, and say our broadband is slow compared to their broadband over there. So, um, uh-huh. but I, but I hear what you're saying. Yes. Anyway, you were going to ask a question. Yeah. Right. So, uh, when do you think all of this will hit India? We know that it will come to India, and that among the emerging economies, it is Brazil, India, and China. So, what is stopping us, basically? Well, I'm not that familiar with the with the fixed line environment in um, in India. I mean, the I know what happened with mobile, and I assume it's a similar problem. Basically, the way that the telecoms industry was deregulated in India um, really sort of tied everybody up for the best part of a decade. This whole system with circles and lots and lots of fragmented markets. Something quite similar happened in Britain with the way that the cable TV industry was deregulated, and there ended up being lots and lots of very very small players. None of them had scale. They were all using different technology. And um, after several years. They all merge down to a, it's now just one cable company in Britain. But India's not that far behind the rest of um, the world in some respects, because even the broadband infrastructure that we have in in Western Europe is quite recent. And uh, what they're doing in America, they're going straight to fibre in some places. And that means that having a, a copper network you know, if you're going to end up bypassing it anyway, having a big, um, widely built out copper network, which you don't really have in India, um, isn't necessarily that much of an advantage. One thing I would say, a lot of people are quite bullish on, on wireless broadband to, to fix this problem. Um, I'm not quite as bullish on, on, on that. I think WiMAX and things like that are quite handy if you want to put a lot of coverage up quickly uh, or to gap fill in areas where you don't have a, a physical infrastructure. But I think ultimately we are going to need, uh, wherever we want this you know, nice, fast broadband services we are going to need a a good fiber infrastructure underneath it and then various kind of supercharged copper around that um one one statistic i heard i'd be interested to hear what your experience is of this i heard that there are more people in um in india with broadband than there are with hot water (laughs) (laughs) which is which is an interesting um interesting priority i don't know how how much need there is to have a hot bath uh, (laughs) in a hot country but uh, well i don't know about broadband but i can tell you that uh, once upon a time it was well even today it is a big deal to own a car 
in India. But yeah. if you have a yeah. mobile phone, it's an in thing. I mean, you need to have yeah, a mobile exactly. phone today. So well, I, I think mobiles and cars are a very interesting comparison because it used to be that young people defined themselves, you know, in America. If you think about the, you know, the rise of the teenager and the car, what kind of car you had, you know, and how you decorated it and how you painted it, that was how you defined yourself socially among your peer group. And um, that's exactly what phones do today. Right. When you meet your friends and you put your phone down and say, well, what kind of phone it is and what ringtone have you got and what, how have you customized it and what have you stuck onto it and all this kind of thing. And I think that's, um, it's a much better technology to, to define ourselves with socially than cars. I mean, it doesn't produce CO2 and you can't <laughs> run people over and that sort of thing. And, you know, the amount of damage you can do with a phone when you've had too much to drink is not that great. You can bring <laughs> up an, ex, an ex-girlfriend that you shouldn't have done. But I think that's a very interesting question. The you know, you know is, since you, I'm sorry to cut you in, but since you mentioned that there are a few phones which uh, allow you to lock a few yes. numbers and yes. uh, which will prevent you from calling your girlfriend or your spouse. So. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> this, is the, this is the sort of thing. And I think this is... I mean, I think mobile phones are a fascinating technology just because of these these social implications. Basically, what happened in America in particular was um, the PCs were very widespread before the mobile phones were. They were very late with the phones, and the number of PCs actually exceeded the number of mobile phones until very recently. And the US and Canada were the only countries in the world where this happened. Everywhere else, even Western Europe, I mean, the, you know, the penetration of PCs in Italy, for example, is only about 25%. And the penetration oh. of mobile phones is way over 100%. Um, Italy is the country that invented prepaid mobile uh, as a tax dodge um, and, uh, yeah. and the, the, you know the, it's said that you know America uh, that Italian men have one prepaid phone for the wife and one for the mistress uh, <laughs> that's the sort of cliche this is how you explain the 120% mobile penetration but anyway um, the point is that the that uh, developing nations may be more mobile centric and less PC centric I mean Intel is incredibly frustrated at the you know, refusal of uh, of, of people in the developing world to buy PCs, but they are not the right uh, technology for people in rural Africa when you haven't got electricity and you haven't got a roof and you haven't got a, a, a waterproof uh, house. I mean, a, right. a mobile phone that you can recharge from a battery makes a lot more sense. Since you mentioned about a few countries in Africa, in fact, in Kenya, your SIM card doubles up for a debit or a credit card. Oh, and yeah, this is this is massive yeah. in Africa, and uh, you can use them to bribe people as well. It's a, oh, you use how's them. that? <laughs> well, basically, because you can transfer credit Credit from one phone to another using text messages. When you go, you know, an official asks for a bribe. One of the ways you pay them is by transferring credit to their phone. So it works as a currency because they can then transfer that to other people. You can buy things using credit. But it also means that uh, you can bribe people remotely. Um, this yeah. is not a good thing, I don't think. But um, <laughs> but but in other ways, the mobile phones are good because they promote more transparency in in parts of the world where more transparency would be a good thing. So um, there are some very nice examples of that uh, in Africa. So uh, okay. mobile phones really are a fascinating technology because they they reflect the diversity of, uh, of human nature and you can use them to do good <laughs> things and to do nefarious things as well. That's correct. But then in India, we have this uh, in news every day that India is adding up to 6 million subscribers yeah. every month. So yeah. then do you think India will skip the broadband phenomenon and directly ride on the mobile phone wave? I think this kind of obsession with the that we must end up with a one PC per person is a very sort of um, American view. Um, now that said, you know the nature of the 
the tech industry in India and so forth probably means that there are Asian countries you could point to that it will be better examples of that, that will be more mobile centric because, you know, India has these, this expertise in, in software and, and so on. I'd be interested to hear your, uh, one, uh, one Indian entrepreneur put it to me this way, and, and I don't know what, what your take on this is, but he said that one of the reasons that India has turned out to be so good at the software side of things and the outsourcing of services and so on is that if you, um, if you pipe stuff in and out of the country like that over internet links or satellite links, then basically people can't hold it up and, and tax it and ask for permits and all this sort of thing. Um, oh. So basically you avoid the bureaucracy by just piping the work in and out through yeah. internet connections. So he said this was sort of a natural reaction to the, to the license raj. Every Indian can empathize with the guy who said that to you because uh, there was time, you know, uh, Tom, back in uh, the early 70s or so when an entrepreneur had to wait for up to 12 months to get his business started. Right. And if you're shipping physical goods around, then you run into these problems the whole time, don't you? You're moving stuff from one state of India to another and you have to you have to have all or if you're moving things in and out of the country. Once you've got your your um, your satellite link or whatever set up to, to take the software that you're you know debugging or whatever you're doing there really isn't any way for um, officials to sort of meddle in the process <laughs> having said that i also have to uh, mention that things have changed dramatically oh yes yes no uh, this was the, this was explained to me as the origin for that uh, that's uh, that phenomenon. i know things have changed a great deal since then, <laughs> because but then again like we are talking about bureaucracy and stuff like that and i have a friend of mine in the middle east but i can't get to him over skype because they've blocked access to right. skype to protect domestic industries i mean essentially they're they're worried about use of the internet generally and there's usually a, a, a monopoly telco and it's usually run by a member of the family of the ruling family and um and it's very lucrative and this has held up um telecoms development in in many parts of the world it was a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that if you made phones really expensive then only the rich could have them and then you'd say well phones are just for the rich so this is a completely circular argument Fortunately, most African countries have figured out that this is wrong and that if you deregulate and you uh, let competition in, um, the mobile operators proliferate. And uh, I mean, you even get them in countries that don't have a government. I mean, um, Somalia at one point had six or seven mobile operators and it had two rival governments. And this, the oh. operators were so annoyed, they actually got together and formed their own regulator. Um, <laughs> and they had higher mobile penetration. Um, you get, yeah, you got war-torn countries in Africa that had higher mobile penetration than Ethiopia and uh, where there is still a, a government monopoly. So that shows you that government is part of the problem here um, in, in, in terms of getting the telecoms services into more people's hands. So I think that's the kind of thing that we're seeing in, uh, in some of these small, rather backward looking Gulf states that uh, they just want to keep things as they are. But the economic benefits from getting more phones into more people's hands are really obvious. It creates entrepreneurs. It, India is a great place to see this. The, the example everyone always cites is fishermen in Kerala and being able to... Uh, to call markets and see which market they'll get the best price for their fish. And uh, there was a beautiful paper done by this by an economist at Harvard. He went actually got, he went back and got the prices from um, all the markets <coughs> along a stretch of the beach over a five-year period. And oh. he analysed what happened to the prices when the phones were introduced, when the phone service was introduced. And it was ad- introduced along the coast in three phases. So you really could see how when the phones came in, the, ma- the wastage went down and the variation in price went down and the, the profits of the fishermen went up and the everyone benefited from this. It's a classic win-win and the phones create a more liquid market and and so on. Uh, They had something similar with a company called ITC, an Indian company, introduced e-chopals. What they used to do is they used to have personal computers connected to the internet for the Indian farmer 
to go through the rates every day. So there was no middleman and they could directly talk to the market. And it also is a case study in Harvard. So yeah. that now is mobile phone. So it's heartening to know that mobile phone is scoring over the PC already in India. Yeah. Yes, well, I mean, I mean, there's a place for both. I mean, some things like if you want to look up, um, you know, weather satellite um, pictures to see for agricultural purposes, then that's something that's going to be easier on a PC. But on the other hand, that's not something you need to be able to do every day uh, or on the move. But I think the amazing thing is that one uh, African mobile executive said that uh, mobile phones have created more entrepreneurs in Africa than anything else in the last 10 years. In India, you see porters and people who are incredibly poor by anyone's standards, and yet they have mobile phones because it's how they get work. And a combination of prepaid um, mobile phones and microcredit and so on really has made this technology available to a much wider range of people than anyone dared to imagine, you know, even a few years ago. You're right. Do you think that technology overall in the whole world is growing too fast or making things too sleek, too small for our own comfort? Like, for example, uh, Dell, Nokia and Apple, they had to recall millions of batteries because uh, something went wrong. It used to heat up and uh, things like that. So yeah, I don't think so. These, these sorts of things happen. But um, if you think that is the case, uh, occasionally people say this. They say, oh, technology is growing too fast and everything's becoming obsolete. Let's just press pause and let's you know, not make any new faster computers for oh. a few years. And then we won't have to upgrade them and we won't have to buy new software. Wouldn't that be great? The benefits of constant improvement, that the price comes down and things become right. more widely available, I think far outweigh the drawbacks. And I really don't think there are any drawbacks. Um, okay. I mean, things like occasionally... Um, a company has to recall the battery. In fact, I had one of the Apple laptops affected, and um, Apple did an absolutely brilliant job of it. You go to the website, you type in the serial number of the battery, and you click a button, and then the next day a, a mailing a box with a with a label on it arrives. And, and what people said at the time with both the Dell and the Apple case, some people said, oh, this is really embarrassing. But actually, um, if you handle it well, you can actually increase your standing in the eyes of your your customers, if, even if it's something that's gone wrong. And, and the, the benefits of, of greater availability and being able to do new things be able to do things like talk to you over Skype for free, I think uh, far, far outweigh these drawbacks. Yeah. Well, then let me ask you a completely uh, opposite question. What do you think will be the tipping point? Uh, will we someday have a mobile phone with everything? Like if, say, for example, 3G actually does work well, then will we have a gadget which uh, talks to my refrigerator, my door, my safe, uh, like a James Bond movie or so? How far away are we from that? Well, I think the single... Uh, Uber device that does everything is is probably not going to happen. And the analogy I draw is with cars. What people seem to do with mobile phones, we've talked about how similar they are to cars, and I think it's a very, very helpful analogy. What people are saying is, what is the ultimate design of a phone that can do everything? And we, we don't ask that about cars. We don't say, what is the best design for a car that can do everything? We recognize that some people want a sports car, and some people want a people carrier, and some people want an SUV, and some people want an estate car. And we recognize that there are lots of different combinations of features that people want. And exactly right. the same thing is going to happen with mobile devices. And in fact, we haven't seen convergence. I mean, we've seen convergence of features, but what we've really seen in the last five to ten years with mobile devices is divergence. We've seen a huge increase in the diversity of the kinds of devices that people have. Some people want a BlackBerry-style device, which is a phone but does email but doesn't have a camera because their corporate um, security policy doesn't allow them to have cameras. Other people want a phone that's you know mainly a phone and a camera. The, the camera feature is important to them. Other people want mainly a phone with, a, with an iPod or you know, other music player attached to it. So there are going to be all of these different um, combinations of, of features and, and essentially each person will choose the device that gives them the combination that they want and places the greatest emphasis on them. Um, oh. You can already use them as, um, as tickets, you know, in Japan, for example. Um, 
you can use your phone as a train ticket and you're getting to the point where you could use that contactless chip as well to as your keys for your door and maybe it'll happen for your car and and so on but i don't think everyone will want to do all of these things and there will be there will always be the phone out there that has everything in it generally those phones don't sell very well i mean things like the um the sony ericsson you know the p900 those kinds of phones swiss army knife phone that try oh. and do everything and they, they generally don't sell that well it's the ones that focus on particular features and do those things well that tend to do better um, there isn't a sort of end game and ultimate phone here oh, okay well i just had one last question for you when do you find the time to write a new york times bestseller when do you squeeze in time for you've written four books uh, as you yeah. mentioned in, initially well it used to be easier than it was i mean the economist being a weekly means that most of the hard work happens on monday tuesday and wednesday and then we push the the uh, the pages out on thursday morning and by that 10 o'clock on thursday it's basically all over and then we have a meeting on friday so thursday and friday are quite quiet days and we sort of go and read the journals and uh, catch up on what's going on and that was when uh, that's when a lot of uh, economist writers who write also write books get to sneak off to the library and uh, <laughs> do some research so so that's what i've yeah. been doing but um but I, I took over running the business pages last year i have an awful lot more responsibility and there are meetings i have to go to every day now so it does leave me a lot less time so my next book which i'm writing which is about food and sort of food as a technology and how oh. how it's it's changed the course of history the technological uses of food that's uh, proving rather more difficult to find time to write but uh, but i am slowly slowly doing it so i'm having a great time researching the uh, the economy of the indian ocean um, oh. in around the 1000 ad and basically the indian ocean has been the center of the world economy for most of history and then there's there seems to have been this brief blip where we europeans came into the mucked everything up but um but the rise of china and india now means that um the uh, essentially we're, we're going to go back to the way things were before where china and india were the biggest economies um, uh, i don't know if you've seen there's a lovely oecd paper on this that came out in 2000 that looked at the um the proportion of gdp share and showed that asia dominated for most of history and uh, and asia is going to dominate once again by the end of this century so it's a very interesting uh, completion of the circle well it was glasses it was wine it was now it's food <laughs> oh yes i'm just interested in all these things but i'm interested in the you know the technological impact of these things or, or the impact of things you don't think of as technologies but you know a drink is a technology and food is a technology uh, you know chickens don't occur in nature they had to be made by humans they had to be bred from the you know the jungle fowl of southeast asia and you know corn on the cob maize does not exist in nature it was it was uh-huh. created by human farmers so they these are very definitely technologies just as much as a missile or a, a magazine or a music player so um so that's why i get to sort of um, get my teeth into them ah it's like the technology for the layman which everyone understands well i just i suppose i see everything as technology but anyway <laughs> that's probably inevitable given my line of work yep all right tom there was it was great talking to you sincerely it was it was fun it was great fun talking to you too thanks very much indeed yeah thanks a lot you you might be heading off to work now it's it's tuesday morning right. over there right yep that's right i'm off to work now so thanks <laughs> very much indeed thank you don have a nice day bye you too bye bye log on to www.theindicast.com and let us know your comments bye bye